Welcome to the Trevor Turnbull Show, where you'll hear vulnerable, honest stories that will inspire you to embrace your mess and live your best life. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Olav Kriegelson. So Olav and I got connected through a men's group that we join every single Monday. It's a place where Guys from all over the world come to be able to share what's on their heart, what's real and alive for them. And I met Olav probably almost a year ago now. And, you know, we only meet every Monday, so it's not like we're talking every single day. So I, you know, slowly over time kind of got to know who he was and then ultimately understand what his core genius is and what he does for his work and all of that kind of stuff. And Turned out he is a neuroscientist at the University of Victoria here in Canada. He's also highly sought after as a topic expert with regards to the neuroscience around how to improve our mental health and some of the things that we can be doing and the science that actually backs that up. And we spoke about that in this interview. And I think it was very timely in the context of what we're all experiencing in the world right now. There's obviously a lot of uh, uneasiness, a lot of fear, a lot of uh, anger, you would even say too. And just quite frankly, just uh, people are feeling off right now from everything from politics to our health, to our relationships, to the way that we interact with family. I know one of the things that I've heard recently and even experienced and have felt myself is this separation from you know people closest to you and where we, we number one, don't spend a lot of intimate time with each other just face to face let alone hugging or high-fiving or handshaking or kissing or whatever it is but also just how it's creating division within families even so some of the the ideas and the beliefs and the biases that we all naturally have based on how we choose to see the world how we were raised our childhood traumas our conditioning all of these different things it's such a fascinating subject and i wanted to bring olav on to just talk about his experience in that and some of the scientific research and, and the discoveries that he's found around not only, you know, why we choose to, or not even choose, but why we show up and why we um, are the way that we are based on the science, but also what we can do to control that or, or to influence that, I guess, is a better way to even put it. You hear a lot of uh, people in this space that talk about rewiring your brain. And how powerful that actually is for our overall health, not only our physical health, but especially our mental health and why this is so important right now. So we went pretty deep on that topic as well as, you know, express some personal opinions even too around what we see all of this doing to the way that we all interact and some of the positive things that are coming out of this. I know we focus so much on the negativity and the restrictions and all of that kind of stuff, but like, what are the positive things that we can take? from the stress that everybody is feeling right now. And I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from Olav. He's got an interesting perspective. He speaks from the heart. He speaks his truth. And he's somebody that I just really appreciate having in my life. And I can't wait to introduce him to you. So let's go ahead and give it a listen. And here we are, Olav. So good to see you, my friend. Thank you good very to see much you for too, doing Trevor. this. Yeah. yeah thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I would have given a bit of an intro prior to this that you wouldn't have heard yet, obviously, because I haven't even recorded it. But I always kind of introduce uh, how I know people and what the context is of this conversation. But 
I was really looking forward to chatting with you because as I've got to know you over the last, geez, almost a year now, I would say, you know, being a part of the the Monday night calls that we participate in, I've got to actually know you on a very personal level, but then also understand kind of what you do in your professional life and where your background is at and all of that. And it's just been more and more um, relevant and top of mind for me. Uh, the whole idea around mental health and our mind and how we react to certain situations. And naturally, I go down deep rabbit holes of exploration and curiosity to try and figure all this stuff out. And some of it, just quite frankly, whew, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. it's a lot. It's a lot, right? But I was really excited when you spoke up last week talking about you being interviewed on different topics related to this, specifically with what's going on in the world right now from a neuroscience perspective, because of course you are a neuroscientist uh, working at the University of Victoria. And yeah, I'd love for you actually to just give a a brief introduction as to like who you are, what you do, uh, and then we'll just kind of roll from there. If you want to just introduce yourself to everybody. Of course, Trevor. Um, yeah, like Trevor said, my name is Olaf Krigolson. I am a neuroscientist at the University of Victoria. Uh, what that really means is I, I spend most of my time doing research. Uh, I think I've found a lot of people think professors spend a lot of their time teaching. I actually don't teach that much. I, I'm a, a research scientist who teaches occasionally. Um, and uh, throughout the COVID pandemic, you know, a lot of what we study is uh, how people brains adapt to different situations. Uh, and, and COVID has almost been a, a global experiment in a sense, uh, which I've found fascinating, just watching how people have changed um, uh, uh, throughout the course of the pandemic. And just, you know, when I look at the, some of the things that are occurring in the world, I, you know, to me, I can think about what's going on in the brain and, and how that sort of explains behavior, if you will. But one of the big things I try to do with my day job is I try to, I'm really interested about neuroscience in the real world. So, like a lot of a lot of research is lab based, and people wonder how does this actually, you know, impact me or translate to me. So, my lab spent a lot of time trying to study these phenomena out and about um, to try to, you know, see if the theories that we develop in a in a lab hold up in the real world. Well, and that's I was taking a look at your podcast, which is that neuroscience guy. For anybody that wants to go check it out as well, I'll make sure to link it up. Uh, but there was two that really jumped out that you've done in the last few months, even too. So how your brain reacts to being sick and then the neuroscience of fear, which is kind of tied to all of this stuff we're talking about. And, you know, those are two of the major topics I think I wanted to lean into because to give a little context for everybody listening, because I think I've mentioned it to you already, Olaf, but, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I did a solo recording, two solo recordings, actually speaking about just speaking out loud about how concerning everything is in the world and the mandates. And just from a personal story perspective, you know, as a dad, and I know you're a dad as well, I made the choice to not get vaccinated for variety of reasons. And I totally respect everybody else's opinion too. This isn't a vaccine conversation, but I've been restricted from taking my kids to swimming lessons. And naturally I can't go on a flight or do anything for that matter, really, you know, And that was one piece of it. But then the other piece was just shifting the conversation towards mental health and questioning, are we measuring the right things? And how is this actually impacting suicide rates in the world? And, you know, what is there science behind a hug 
and a smile. And what comes up for you when I say all that? Because that's what I've been saying out loud. And then naturally it has me go, well, what's the answer to all of these things? And you, I'm sure you have a perspective that would be super helpful on that. Well, the science and hug one, uh, the, the hug piece is, is kind of really interesting because one of the COVID phenomena that I've found fascinating is, you know, it used to be you'd go to, a, say, a supermarket, right? You'd be standing in line and you would sort of, there's people in front of you and behind you and you don't really interact, right? You're on your phone or you're, you're just sort of waiting. And I've found that people talk more now, like we're kind of starved for communication and interaction in a sense, because, you know, whatever stage the pandemic has been in, it's still not normal life. So I've found myself having these random conversations with strangers, right? Just, you know, and, and, and extended conversations. So it's similar to the hug idea in the sense that, like, we're hardwired to be social creatures. We like social interaction. There is a small subset of the population that, that doesn't, isn't wired that way, but it's a very small percentage. Like, it, it's pretty rare you find someone that doesn't want to hug. <laughs> and in this pandemic situation, it's pretty rare you find someone that doesn't want to interact. Like, you know, we, we do it with different degrees of, of germophobia, I guess. You know, sometimes when I'm out for my morning walk, you, you see some people do this massive loop around you. And other people <laughs> are still a lot closer. But even on the morning walk, I find like, you know, it used to be we just sort of look at each other. And now it's like people say, hey, how's it going? And, and, I, and I think it's one of the things you see is that we're all kind of starved in some sense for more social interaction and in, in, and, and interaction and that and that ties to that mental health thing that you brought up which is you know all most of the decisions that have been made within the pandemic are completely medically based you know whether they're great whether they're accurate decisions or not you know that's a whole other debate but i think people haven't thought about the i think they've thought about it but the, the focus hasn't been on mental health clearly and i've got a couple of friends that are clinical psychologists and neuropsychologists and they're just like the amount of calls that they're getting and visits that are all depression or suicide, or it's just, they're skyrocketing, you know, and, and, and it's going to, and the thing is people think the pandemic's going to end and, and this stuff will just be fixed. That's not the way it works. It's like, if you look at soldiers that come back from wars, they're, they're messed up for years. Like the, the, the impact of COVID is going to, you know, for every month we've been in it, we've probably got two months of time to recover. So we're looking at probably four years, and that's just a guess. But, you know, it's definitely not going to be like, oh, the pandemic's over. Everything's good now. Let's all be happy. Yeah, no doubt. I had thought of two things when you were explaining that. One is, I think of Howie Mandel all the time because he was kind of well-known as, like, being a germaphobe, right? He'd never shake hands. He was always fist-bumping and that kind of thing. And I know even personally because it's, you know, we can actually, we can look at the world from our observation, from our own viewpoint, through our biases and everything else. But like for me, you know, we'd have a guy come over here to help fix the sprinklers and do you shake hands or don't you? Like you start thinking about it and then eventually you just kind of default to not doing it. And then, and then it just starts to feel like normal again, but in a way that doesn't feel right. And that's, that's kind of what's come up for me in the last two years. And it's been gradual. It's not like it happened overnight that all of a sudden everybody just stopped shaking hands or smiling. That's one thing. And then the second thing, too, is the fact that we're hearing a lot of politicians, and I don't want to tie in all the politics on this, although I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about it. But, you know, you're hearing politicians that are speaking up, but they're actually doing it again from the perspective of what they're experiencing. So they're saying their constituents are calling in. And they'll make reference to like 
the mom that's saying that their kid won't eat because they're so anxiety filled from what they're dealing with at schools and the lack of interaction with their peers. There's seniors that are calling in and saying that they want to end their life because they're so lonely. They don't have people around them, including loved ones. And then the other reference was, you know, a man that called in who was a small business owner who was in tears because his business is collapsing in front of him. And I, and I'm, Although it's really sad to hear those things, I'm really encouraged to hear people talking about this out loud because it's at least bringing awareness to it. And, you know, that that's the first thing that, that came to mind there is how quickly, or sorry, how slowly things kind of got to where they were. And then now, how do we get back to a state of wanting to interact and be social and, and hug and smile and high five and everything in between? There's a lot of interesting pieces in there. Like as a dad, and I know you're a dad too. The kids thing is the one thing that you mentioned that I've thought about a lot, right? So from an, an you know a neuroscience perspective, kids' brains are still developing, right? And they don't have all the tools that you need to deal with things. So I'm really curious about the impact on the kids because while you know my son's more tech savvy than I am, um, you know at least it looks that way. You know it's not the same as, as direct interaction. And and he is socially isolated now. Like he, you know, he spend he does go to school and he wears his mask, but his actual friend time is is really really limited. And he definitely experienced paranoia. And it, again, it's it's that no reference point, right? Like they're they're new to the world. Even as you know, even we look at them and they're fourteen and fifteen, we think, oh, okay, that's pretty far along. Your brain's not finished developing then, right? Like your brain is, and especially the logical part of the brain. So that's the front part of your brain, the, the, what we call the prefrontal cortex. That's the last thing to finish off, right? And it's basically why kids make stupid decisions because the logical part of their brain isn't there fully yet. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's why girls actually mature a little bit earlier than boys because they they're, the prefrontal cortex in girls tends to be a little bit more fully formed. And they have these emotional systems there. And, and the other one that was interesting is the elderly people. Because like I, I said earlier, our brains are hardwired to be social. And, you know, elderly people can be isolated at the best of times. And then you slap a, pa- you slap a pandemic on top of that, right? And, it's, and, and the data on this is really clear. Like if you, if you look at uh, elderly people that do have a lot of social interaction, these are the ones that are high, high function, high performing. They have lives. They get out. They do things. And the ones that tend to, you know, slip into Alzheimer's or dementia faster or end up killing themselves are the ones that are socially isolated. And that was without the pandemic. Like, that was just the way it was pre-pandemic. So then you add the pandemic on top of it where you're pushing more of them or all of them in some cases into social isolation. We're just creating all those problems that we already knew that were there, but we're just pushing more people there. And uh, it, it's sad. Like, my mom's in New Zealand and I haven't seen her for two years and she doesn't have a lot of, you know, a lot of friends there anymore because she's 84 and, and uh, you know, mo- a lot of them have passed. And she is, she's in tears most nights when I call her because she's just so fed up. <laughs> she doesn't know what to do. And I think the only reason she, she's still, you know, keeping going is because she believes at some point her son and her grandson will make an appearance. <laughs> and it all makes sense in terms of the brain. Like, it's just, it's just the way we're wired. Um, I think part of it's just being aware of it too. Totally. Yeah. You know, not to feel bad because you're down. It's perfect. Like, you know, people that are up, you know, people that are depressed or a bit more sad during the pandemic, like, yes, you should be. Because if you were going to design a, a system to create depression, 
COVID is what you would design. Like, you know, you take people away from their loved ones, create these impossible situations like yours where you can't go see your kids, but you're dying to go see your kids do their sports. And and that's the recipe for what you would do. Yeah, no. And I believe that just having conversations like this to even just bring awareness, even if it's just one or two little nuggets along the way that somebody picks up is a part of it. And, you know, one of the byproducts that I actually experienced of doing those two episodes, which to be perfectly honest, was uncomfortable for me because I had this, my own fear of like, well, what if I say something that offends somebody? What if my facial expressions and my hand movements make me look like an angry 14 year old Trevor that used to fight when I was a hockey player? You know, I had all these things coming up in my head and there's probably, I'm sure you could break down exactly why that is too. But when I did it, And I actually stepped through that and I did it from the intention of like just having the conversation. I actually reached out to family even too, including my sister, who's a principal at a school with an MBA with 23 years experience teaching. And I was like, how are you doing? Because I'm seeing articles talking about like what's actually going on in the schools and the pressures that the teachers and the administration staff are feeling. And she said, I haven't cried as much as I have in the last six months is what she told me. But then also just thanks for asking was that was the immediate response after that. I think society gives us this pressure to not share our emotions as much as we do. Right. You know, like it's to it's we, we, we live in a lot of superficial conversations. And, you know, this is kind of goes back to the supermarket thing, which is, you know, pre covid. Oh, how's your day going? And this default response is good. <laughs> you know, very rarely would you give the honest response was, well, actually, it's going really crappy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, here's the truth. Here's the truth. And, and and just even that connection, just to reach out and do it, you know, like to, because, you know, I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone else, even though I know that these things are real. Like I phone my friends and I'm like, hey, what's going on? And we have this very sort of high level conversation. And then you hang up and go, well, hey, I've talked to someone, but did you really talk? And again, that's, that's part of that, that innate need we have for social interaction. And it's also part of it's innate to share it. Like, you know, one of the key steps with these things that, you know, and I'm not a clinical uh, psychology type, but you know, what, what the, again, what the research shows you is one of the worst things you can do is keep it all in, (laughs) right? Like you want to get it out somehow, whether it's a conversation or a journal or however you express yourself. Um, And the reason for that is you, your brain needs to release on it. If you ruminate on a, like, you know, depression, the cycle of depression, for instance, is just basically your brain is in a loop and it can't get out of it. So, you know, any depression intervention and that, you know, it comes down from stuff in the midbrain that's firing weird and lots of other things. But the, the key to treating that is to somehow get out of that loop and sharing is one way to do that. Right. It's like communicating. Yeah, no doubt. I, I'm just, just thinking like, even something as simple as this gratitude, one line a day. Like I bought this one at the bookstore a few weeks I back. Like yeah. And I've got another journal that I use as well, but this one was really simple to do. I was like, yeah, I can do that. And it is actually very gratifying to even just get something out, especially when it's from a positive perspective. But I think this is like you and I meeting where we have inside of this um, safe container for men to be able to just show up and speak what's real and alive for them. It's a piece of that. And I think it's becoming more and more evidence, at least I'm feeling in the last like two, three months, that how much need there is for these spaces for people to just be able to come and talk and be seen and be heard um, and to find that commonality in that that tribe. Kind of like you talk about with the seniors, you know, like if they're locked up in their rooms, 
well, that's not good. But what was their life life like before? Well, it was, you know, go for lunch, play some cards. Like it wasn't super exciting maybe before, but there was that interaction, right? There was the ability to be seen and be heard. Yeah, exactly. And we all, well, I think the, the, the quickly, the Monday night thing is really interesting because one of the anecdotal comments you hear a lot is the weeks that we, that we show up, we have good weeks afterwards because we've had this experience of talking in the weeks we don't. We don't have as good weeks, and and it, it, I think that is you know it's just from a social science perspective highlights just the value of these conversations, and 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 what you said about the seniors is equally fascinating because one of the problems with this is like basically what what we do is is at the left side of our brain the frontal part sort of constructs a worldview and this is our reality this is what we deal with so whether it's going for lunch and playing cards as a senior, and and the right side of the brain is sort of questioning that worldview constantly saying, is this the way the world works? And one of the things that stressed us is that COVID has forced us to constantly update our worldview. Like it's the seesaw of these surges of, of, you know, COVID, right? Everything's okay. Like this year is a classic example, which is, I think almost unanimously, we all had a lot of hope heading into Christmas and going, oh my God, it's going to be a normal Christmas. Can't wait. Or whatever your winter holiday is, right? And then all of a sudden it gets shattered again, <laughs> right? Yeah. And our and our brain's struggling with that because it's you know most of our lives are pretty constant. Even if you you know even if you're someone that travels all the time for work, that's still a constant because you're just used to doing that all the time. And the and the pandemic has forced us to just constantly be in this state where our worldview is just constantly changing. Um, and and those swings are hard. And and you parallel that with you know uh, the emotional center of our brain is something called the amygdala. There's two of them: one on the left, one on the right. And you know our all, our emotional system is on overdrive right now. You know it's it, it's it's you know we're in a stressful situation which ramps it up. You know and 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 it's not just it's constant stress. Like it's just like whether we were t- even if you're handling it well. There's constant stress because in the background, there's the pandemic always, right? Which is no different than being in a war. I keep using that analogy because it's true. Like being in a war, it would be constantly stressful. Um, and we just haven't had a real break. Like even the breaks haven't been great. Like, you know, during the summertime it was a little bit better for a while. But we're, in the back of our minds, we're all going, well, when's it coming again? And the news is always suggesting that, that something's coming and it's not quite done yet. And, so you combine all these factors, it explains a lot of behavior. Yeah. I've got a couple other things I want to go down, but you just brought up one that's gonna that I'm gonna latch onto right now, which is the media message. And just from that uh scientific perspective, if you want to speak to and even any kind of personal opinions you have, but the best example like best way to describe it is that if we prepare for war and challenge and struggle and and financial strain then we get more of that and if we if we prepare for a world that's like peaceful and loving and filled full of abundance well then we get more of that at least that's a theory right and maybe it can be scientifically backed or maybe it's just a spiritual belief but the media what part has the media played in this and what's your thoughts on that with from with regards to like what if we led the news with more good stories as opposed to the death and the despair yeah, I think it all depends on and what you know what the like a lot of the channels tend to start with doom and gloom, right? What, what bleed leads, right? What yeah. bleeds leads, yeah, exactly, and and that sets the tone, right? And it's you know we believe that's the truth of our world, 
right? You know, we all have our own news sources, right? Some of us, you know, watch different channels or read different things because that's what we believe is true. But whatever you're reading doesn't really matter. It sets the tone. You go, we've sort of been raised to go to the news as a source of truth, right? And if that message is negative, that puts us in a negative space because we believe the world isn't as good as we hoped it would be. And you're right, if the message was more positive, you know, that puts us in a better space. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I don't know what it's like in Kelowna. Vancouver Island Television does a pretty good job of trying to balance it. At least it's not always, like I always contrasted it. You know, I've got a lot of friends in the States, and I, I just know every time I'm down in the States, it's amazing how different the tone of the news is. Like it's just, you know, it's just constant stories about crime and, and whatever else and political crises and COVID. And I think in Canada we do a better job. Well, I'm not saying the media up here is perfect, but it seems to be better. And I'd be curious to see how the that impacts differences in beliefs about the world. Like, I know there's a lot of psychological data on this that, you know, Americans believe they're more likely to have their home broken into and they're more likely, you know, to, to be murdered, even though you can actually show that if, if you compare demographics with a comparable part, say, of Canada, you know, they're, the st- statistically, they're, they're not, it's not going to happen. But it's just the media sets this tone. And it does have an impact on us because it's one of our big sources of truth in the world. So if you think back to the prefrontal cortex, the right the right side of the brain is integrating all this all the time, saying, "Well, this is the way the world works, so the world is a bad place." We gotta that's how we have to see it. Yeah, there's almost a rewiring that needs to happen on that too. What's um, obviously you're familiar with the Dr. Joe Dispenza's and uh, Bruce Lipton and all that kind of stuff too, and that's a lot of the language that they use of like rewiring your thoughts that ultimately helps change your entire perspective. And even the, I don't want to mispronounce this, but like the neurology of your body, your, your chemical makeup of your body. Well, it's exactly true. It's, it's, you know, um, you know, one of the the key neurotransmitters in this is dopamine and dopamine is associated with reward and pleasure. And, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty clear that if you have a more positive worldview, you've got more of this neurotransmitter floating around and this leads you to feeling better. So that the idea of rewiring and focusing on different things is massive. Um, I remember one study where they actually took the, the, the news out of people's lives and they, you know, they, that, they were right? happier, right? You know, yeah. it's kind of like the curse of social media. Social media can be an amazingly good thing. It can, it can also be amazingly negative, right? So it, it, it comes down to this ability to being able to do it. And that's why one of the things I've focused on a lot is brain health uh, throughout the pandemic, because, you know, one of the best things you can do is, is put yourself in a place where your brain is as healthy as possible. And, and the analog is, is, is obvious. Like if you were going to run a marathon, say you would train and put your body in a place to be successful. Well, it's, it's true of your brain. You know, there's things you can do to put your brain in a better spot to, to be successful. And, and and that allows you to cope better, whatever the, you know, whether, you know, whatever aspect of the panic, your pandemic you're uh, talking about. Yeah. And I know we were, <laughs> you were kind of joking about it last week saying that, yeah, I got interviewed on, and I think you referenced a few sources of like five tips for better brain health and kind of referenced the idea of like, they, they weren't that like earth shattering. It's pretty basic stuff, but let's repeat these though. Cause people, I think a lot of times, maybe with everything that's going on in the world might just think like, oh, how do I change my perspective in this world? How do I feel better in my own skin and my own head and that type of thing? What were those five things that you talked about? Let's just say them all loud for people so they can ground for them and wire something into people's heads. 
Well, the, the data from our lab, it's a project that I've had a lot of passion on recently. Um, data from my lab and other labs, too, is quite conclusive that sleep is like the number one thing that it impacts mental health. Um, if, you, if you are getting a good night's sleep, and in, in, in most people need between seven and nine hours, um, there, it's a small subset of people that need less than seven hours. But one of my favorite studies, they, they, they found all these people that said they could live off of five or six hours of sleep. And they were all underperforming. There was like 3% of them or something that were able to actually function that way. The rest of them just thought they could. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They willed themselves to it. They hustled their way to it. Or, you know, how many cups of coffee do you need to get going? And, and yeah, right. You go. But the, um, so sleep is the, the number one thing. Like getting a good night's sleep is a priority. And there's all sorts of sleep tips that are out there, uh, you know, that you can learn to help have a better night's sleep. Um, the other two are kind of like always say it's the stuff our, our, our parents told us because it's, it's diet and exercise. You know, you know we, we all know that alcohol sales have gone up during the pandemic quite massively, but it's actually the worst thing you can do in a stressful time. So we do it because we believe that if we have a couple drinks, um, you know, it's going to make us feel better and we'll relax and chill. But, you know, it's the data on alcohol. And to be honest, I'm not a Puritan here. I enjoy a couple of beers as much as the next guy. <laughs> um, but, you know, alcohol is a depressant. So if you're in a depressing situation and you're taking depressants, it, it's just, you know, <laughs> it, it's a short-term fix with long-term consequences. And just diet, too. There's a lot of research now that high-sugar diets are bad for your mental health, you know. The, the new Canada Food Guide is is actually pretty impressive in the sense that, you know, they've hit, hit it pretty good, which it's not what we were raised with. It's definitely changed from the food guide I saw as a kid. I'm going to have to link that up because I, I don't think I've maybe even looked at it for 20 years. Yeah, just about. I, think it was a year, I don't remember exactly. It's in the last year or two. They released a new food guide and it's it's basically stuff you see in the media, which is you probably eat a le- less red meat and less processed meat and eat more vegetables, less carbohydrates. So it's in line and the research supports it. And the last one's exercise. Um, you know, whatever your form of exercise is, for me, it's a daily walk. You know, exercise is good for brain health. So those, those three things are sort of the classics. The two newer ones uh, that, that people talk about are things you can do um, in terms of mindfulness. So, you know, a lot of people think of meditation right away, but it doesn't have to be meditation. It could be yoga. It could be breathing. It could just be sitting in your backyard, you know, in a quiet space, but just stuff that allows your brain to sort of calm down and, 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 and have a bit of time off. So mindfulness uh, and all these forms of mindfulness have been shown to have positive impacts on brain health. And then the last one, social interaction, which, of course, we've already touched on a bit. But, you know, if, if, if you do those five things in principle, that's like how you're training for the brain Olympics. And, and if your brain is in a healthier spot, um, you're better able to deal with things like the pandemic. It, again, there's so many cool studies that can be done, but I, I suspect strongly that people that are doing more of these things are probably reporting less rates of depression and suicide. And, and people that are ticking all the boxes, you know, um, there was a stretch uh, early in the pandemic where just some personal stuff happened in my life. And I was not ticking all five of the boxes, and I can assure you my mental health was not where I wanted it to be. And as I've sort of, you know, regained these five things in my life, my mental health is in a better space. Yeah, no, and I think that's an important thing to say out loud, too, is that, you know, a lot of times I know I just started new uh, a program, a 12-week program, actually. I invested in it, and I'm like, I'm all in, and it's health and fitness and mindset and breath work and everything related, 
And I'm, I'm wired myself personally to go, okay, I'm going to do this like right. And which means I'm going to get all my baselines. So I got like the list here. I'm going to go get my gut health, micronutrients tested, my blood cells, my vitamin levels, my body fat test. And before I knew it, I had like 20 things that it was just like, oh God, what am I going to have time to do this? You know? So I actually grounded back to just working on one thing at a time. So having an intention and then a behavior that then becomes a habit and kind of like the, the path to becoming a new person and the silence thing and, and mindfulness has been a big one for me because I do a cold plunge every single day now. All of, <laughs> I, I know a, you're telling us about that. Yeah. Yeah. I bought like a horse trough and put it on my, on my deck and luckily here in Canada, it's cold enough, but I've been going in it and actually using it as like a journaling thing too. So like I'm making commitment, I go in it every day and then I speak to my camera and just record myself and journal. And I had a friend the other day challenge me. He goes, all right, I'm going to push you on something here. He says, why don't you sit in there and do nothing? I was like, what do you mean do nothing? Like, why, why would I not do something while I'm in there? If I'm going to be sitting in a cold plunge, he's like, no, 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 trust me on this. Just do nothing. And I just started last night with the intention on doing that. And I found my mind just racing. Like I had 50 things grow through my head before I finally caught myself and stopped and just said, just breathe. <laughs> so I'm just saying that, like, be kind to yourself, right? As you start these practices. Yeah, exactly. Well, it, yeah, that's the, the big thing to realize is if you walked away from listening to this and you were going to try to tackle all five of these things in one go, you're bound to fail, right? Like it's, it, you know, our brains, as, as you mentioned, it's true. Like when we're rewiring habits, one step at a time, right? You know, you've got to give your time for your brain to learn something new. So you pick one thing and, 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 you, and you do that and then you tackle something else. And also realize you can't do it all the time, right? You know, like it's not like you should, you know, some nights you will get less sleep for whatever the reason is, right? Sometimes you are going to break your dietary habits. Sometimes you'll forget to go for your walk. That's fine. It's, it's, it's built, developing the trend over time. And the one, the other thing you mentioned that I always found fascinating, something I've gotten into in the last year, um, is breathing. Is I find breathing an amazing. Uh, that would be my form of mindfulness is just trying some deep breathing exercises. And uh, I find it's it's once you learn how to do it, in a sense, I find it really relaxing, and I come out of it quite focused or or and chill, if that makes sense. You know, part of me is ready to tackle what's next. Part of me is is very calm about it. I don't know if I'm brave, brave enough to to leap into the the cold tub though. We got. Uh, <laughs> I live in a place called Cabro Bay, and there's a, every morning when I walk along the beach, there's a couple people in the ocean sitting there um, doing the the morning plunge, and I always think to myself, you know, I can see myself doing it, and then I sort of forget that I said that. <laughs> well, it's there's no doubt about it that it's massively uncomfortable naturally, right? It's just on your skin, your body, like your blood kind of goes to the to your organs and you want to freak out a little bit in the first 30 seconds because your body's just kind of adapting. But that's, that's the one thing that it, it took me about a, I'd say a dozen times of doing it to really get into a state of just accepting the fact that like, yeah, it's, it's going to be uncomfortable. And then when I jump in here, it's going to be uncomfortable until my body starts to kind of numb, but then I can relax. And, and I find that's uh it's very therapeutic too. So it's even less about the like benefits of the cold therapy side of things and more about just how I'm facing this challenge that quite frankly, you know, I'm not going to die going into my cold plunge, but so then why am I creating this story of how painful it's going to be? It's actually not that painful. I'm just telling myself that. And that's been 
really interesting psychologically and even the breath work too. It's a very similar thing. You know, I've found myself at times, you know, for example, if I'm engaging in, in what could be a heated conversation, healthy conflict, right? Like not an angry situation, but healthy conflict, I feel the pressure in my chest. And then I actually notice that I stop breathing. And I have wasn't really conscious about that before I started doing some breath work where, you know, you notice it and then you're like, wait a second, I'm not breathing. So therefore there's no oxygen getting into my blood. My brain's not engaging and, you know, it, it's huge. You need to breathe. You do. You do. One thing that you said that I found fascinating because I've, I've experienced this myself is people have to remember that perception is learned. This is kind of a side note, but like we learn like you can learn to adapt to these situations, right? Because our we we learn to perceive these things. Like the people that live up in the you know up in the north, like you know the Eskimos or whoever, you know they can live at different cold temperatures because they're they've adapted and their bodies have learned that that's perfectly fine. And and you know it's so the, you you can adapt to all of these things. You just gotta gotta give it some time and let your mind make the change. Right. What's uh, just curious if you have an answer on this, but. What is kind of the timeline that somebody can expect to create a habit? Because you hear all different kinds of perspectives on this. Is Do you got any insights on that, on what the data has told you? There's no magic number for it. Because um, the biggest problem is individual differences, right? But generally, generally, you know, you need to keep it something for a couple of months. You know, I'd say that's a rule of thumb. Um you definitely can't expect to form a new habit in a week, right? Like it's, and it's, it's something that has to be reinforced. So a lot of it's how you form the habit, right? Which is you've got to reward yourself for doing the habitful behavior, whatever that reward is. You've got to make it a priority in your life. All right. You've goal setting is a big thing. Reminders about your habit because your brain cues on these things, right? You know, when I was trying to cut back on sugar, I put a sign on the fridge that said, don't eat sugar, right? And it, and it was enough. <laughs> I got to get that one. <laughs> I got to make that one, I should say. You don't have to buy it. Just go get a piece of paper, right? That's that's all I did. But it was funny how that's that one little cue helped me with the habit, mm-hmm. right? Because before that, I would go to the fridge and grab something sweet or the drawer because, you know, it's just in the kitchen so I can see it. And you know, I was justifying it in my brain and I was going through the whole thing. And the worst part was given my day job, I knew exactly what I was doing. Like, I just like, you're lying to yourself to break the habit. Right. Um, but generally it's a couple months for something to settle down. It's just individual, the individual differences are tricky, but again, it comes down to things as well. Like, like, you know, mindset, uh, where your mental health is like one of the problems of the pandemic is, is creating new habits in a stressful environment where an emotional environment is trickier than if everything is going, you know, great. It's also why we break habits. You know, you know, we talked about alcohol sales. I bet you ice cream sales are through the roof during the pandemic too, right? Yeah. Or even nicotine too, for that matter, right? They say those are the, those are the recession proof kind of industries, right? Because whether it's an up or a down market, everybody, seems the yep. default to the alcohol, either celebrating or in a depressive mode. Exactly. Um, so yeah, a couple months is sort of the rule of thumb, but a, a lot, the more important thing is, is not sitting there waiting for a couple months, but the things you can do to set yourself up. So reminders, good brain health, uh, rewarding, rewarding yourself for doing the habit. Yeah. We've, uh, we've got a sticker up like a magnet on our fridge that says you're not hungry. 
uh, you're thirsty, drink some water. <laughs> and it's That's like a good right one. by the fridge door. I know, right? Hyd- hydration's one that I've, I, I need to get back into because I know that uh, the data on hydration again, like the funny thing about it, all the data is clear. It's just a matter of doing these things, right? Like if you drink your recommended amount of water per day, your brain will function more optimally. You'll be less tired. It's just remembering, you know, I had three sips of water this morning and then what am I at four hours later and I've yet to have another sip because I just need to remind myself. Well, again, that's why it's good that we just talk about this, though, because, you know, there's lots of conversations out there about these things. But a lot of times it's the simplest things that can ground a person into better mental health, uh, just starting with something as simple as drinking more water. You know Exactly. Well, if I was going to push one above all, and I sort of mentioned this is a passion area for me, but we've, in one, we've done the research on it, sleep and like just good sleep hygiene, right? So the, the classics are like, you know, no caffeine after, you know, midday ideally, but definitely not after dinner. You know, the, the research on screens in front of your face is conclusive, I would say, which is, you know, the refresh rate of an iPad does increase alertness in your brain, um, creating a positive sleep environment. And in fact, the, the scary, I've got a, a friend down in the States, uh, Matt Walker, and he's, he's a big sleep researcher. And uh, he said the scariest thing to me that I've ever heard in my life a couple of years ago when I'm striving to get there, which is the best way to assess, assess your sleep quality is you should be going to sleep the same time every night, regardless of whether it's a weekend or a weekday. But here's the, here's the scary part. You should be able to wake up the same time every day without an alarm clock and without feeling the need for caffeine. And he said, if you can pull that off, your sleep hygiene is good. You're, you're good to go. I've got to the part where I, 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 I don't, I don't need an alarm clock most of the time, but, but, uh, I'm struggling with the caffeine piece. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, part of this, uh, this program that I'm in right now, actually, I've been, you know, texting back and forth with the fitness trainer that I'm involved with and, just trying to get my head wrapped around everything so it doesn't become overwhelming, but I can set a routine and it's intentionally meant to be like intermittent fasting, which I think is another piece of the sleeping side of things too, because if you start eating at like 11 and you finish at five, well, now your body is not trying to process food at, you know, from that snack at 10 PM at night. So I think that's a piece of it. But then the other one was coffee. I was like, yeah, I don't know what your opinion is on coffee. And he's like, no, keep drinking your coffee. But you know, throughout this program, you will stop drinking coffee. And I was like, what? How do I stop drinking coffee and function in the morning? Yeah. So I'm literally in the middle of that one. I'm even worse off than you because I uh, I don't drink coffee. So I, I'm one of these weirdos that's having Diet Pepsi at 9 a.m. to get their day going, which is completely ah, yeah. disgusting at any number of levels. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, I sort of ebb and flow. I, I did... Uh, I was pretty good without caffeine for September to December. And then I, I, I did the COVID thing in December and then I got pneumonia afterwards. So for the past sort of oh, wow, yeah. five, five or six weeks, I've had no energy. And I found that the Costco run to get the flat of Diet Pepsi was the only way to really get through the morning. <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like we both have patterns that we get to shift somehow here, right? I don't know what, exactly. what the answer is. It's, uh, but we'll figure it out. I'll keep you posted on what I sort out there too. But one other thing I wanted to touch on with you too, and you kind of brought it up, you know, the idea of this sickness and just sickness in general, but especially with COVID and the fact that, you know, I think everybody that I know now has got it, or at least knows somebody that has, you know, my whole family, our kids didn't get it actually officially. We didn't test them, but my wife did. 
I had all the symptoms, but tested negative. Both my neighbors were positive and they were here the night before that we all got sick. Like it's, it's literally everybody's getting it. But I sent you over a handful of things uh, before this too. And I just wanted to touch on some of these topics. Like, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. The idea of like anxiety contagion, where we make something worse due to the anxiety of what it could be. And then questioning, like how many people would be in hospitals right now if we didn't have this overlying fear that's surrounding COVID and and the in your face every day about the death rates and everything. And so I'm interested to get your perspective on that. And I'm sure some of it may be personal opinion, but others, if you, if you oh, want to maybe, yeah. Oh, no, no. The, the science on the anxiety and stress piece is clear, which is uh, anxiety and stress both. Lo- well, the, the, it, it sounds weird that there's a link, but, you know, you can you can go on Google Scholar and read about it yourself. Anxiety and stress uh, weaken our immune systems. Right. So, you know, by, by creating the stake of anxiety, we're actually uh, putting pl- people in a place where they're more likely to get sick. And the other thing that happens is you can, of course, there's the, the, the placebo effect, which in this case would be the reverse placebo effect, which is if you're anxious, any symptom you have, you know, could be amplified. Right. So something that you normally would just go, hmm, OK, I got a cough. Now it's like, do I have COVID? And that, you know, can psychologically make things worse. Right. Our brain is definitely, you know, our, one thing people always, well, people don't, don't forget because maybe they've never heard it, but our brain creates the world, right? Like, you know, our, our, you know, the world that we see and interact with, it's created by your brain and anxiety plays a role in that. And, and if your anxiety is creating this world where you think you're sick, it, it could amplify that even more. So you can literally think yourself into getting sick. Um, and as, and, and the double whammy is if you do get sick, Anxiety and stress can weaken your immune system. So, it, you know, you're in this weird place where we're, you're sort of hitting yourself twice, if you will. Yeah, it's such an interesting and complicated subject, too, because I know, like, for example, I have a cousin who's an EMT and he's surrounded by death all the time, right? He's constantly bringing people, seniors in many cases, from nursing homes into hospitals and ICUs and whatnot. And that whole fear around the sickness and, and, and dying and death is obviously something that a lot of times is really like, people don't like to talk about it. And then therefore that creates anxiety. And then when we, when I think about the doctors, cause I know one of the things, and I've had to work through this in the last couple of weeks, even in, in speaking out loud about like, here's what's real for me, knowing that it's not the only story. Cause he has his perspective too. But as the trucker rally, for example, has been going on and, and people are either, behind it or indifferent or against it in some cases like in my cousin's case he's been he's been vocal about the fact that like i don't agree with this and part of his grounding is that we need to continue to support these healthcare workers because they're still in the trenches doing all this stuff and and i agree with him but i think of it's both though and then that's where it gets a little complicated and and then the one other thing i'll say and i'll let you respond is I think about these doctors too, like our doctor, for example, our general practitioner, he's stressed right now. He doesn't say it out loud, but you can tell, like, he's just, he's like, yeah, my staff uh, can take time off. And in fact, now get five days paid leave as, as per government mandates, but I can't take any time off. And we brought him a care package the other day with some wine and a Starbucks gift card. And we were just like, appreciate you. That was it. Just trying to give him a little glimmer of like appreciation and yeah, I don't, I don't even know where I'm going with that aside from to say that like, 
it's such a complicated conversation that I think a lot of times people are led by the fear or, or influenced by the fear. And then therefore anger takes over or wanting to be right. And as opposed to the compassion side of things of seeing that, like, of course we want all of our doctors and, and healthcare workers to be supported throughout all of this. And we want our freedom of rights back. What comes up for you when I say that? There wasn't really a question in there, but yeah, no, no, no. It, it well, it touches home a bit because we did a, a fatigue study um, in the ER pre-COVID here at one of the hospitals, and you know the doctors were all exhausted, right? You know it was very clear from measuring their brain activity that they were exhausted. So if they were exhausted and stressed before the pandemic, <laughs> think of what they're like, because they're just people, you know, they have a job and they suffer all the things we do. So I, and the, the thing that's scary about it too is, you know, exhaustion and stress and anxiety, you know, decreases your ability to make good decisions. So again, if you wanted an interesting research project, I'd be fascinated to look at the number of medical errors that have been made during COVID versus before COVID, because we're putting, we're putting our doctors in a place where they, they're worn out, they're tired, they're constantly stressed, you know, their exposure, you know, like it's, it's kind of like, you know, every time you walk into a hospital, your chances of getting sick is, is much greater now than it used to be. So I, it really, I think that I love the compassion thing for the medical people because it, from a personal anecdotal experience, it could be a it would be easy to get frustrated with the medical system because there's delays, you're, you're, you know, it's slow, uh, you're, you know, we're, you want things now and you can't like I have my doctor told me to get some blood work done a while back and it took me four weeks to get into life. I was going to say, was, how many months did that take? Yeah, <laughs> I know. And it's like, by the time I got the blood work, like what's the point? Like it's so, you know, it's, it's easy to get frustrated, but I, I think the other side of it is, is, is the, you know, the, the stress and fatigue that these people are feeling is probably greater than our own. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, just because mm -hmm. they're exposed, you know, we can hide at home. They can't, they're going right to where they know like they're going like every time you go to the grocery store, you, you know, all of us probably go, well, what, wonder if anyone here has COVID, you know, they go to work in a place where they know they have, there's COVID <laughs> it's all over the place. Well, and it kind of alludes to what you were saying before of like going to war in a, from a mind perspective, it's, it's kind of like that. It's just, we don't call it that, but they're in the trenches every single day. Yeah, I think it it brings up and and we won't have time to go down this this hole here, but just looking at and analyzing the right things. I know that's one of the things that just keeps coming up for me is so how many errors are happening in the medical space because of the stress related to all of these things? And then at the same time is, you know, well, how well funded are these things? Like in Canada, of course, we have like a, a healthcare system where our taxes pay for that and naturally our wait times are a little longer for certain procedures as a result of that. And then you go into the States where you, it's like pay, pay for service and their disaster of a Medicare system and everything else. Right. And neither one is perfect, but I believe that there's aspects of like, I just think about where funding goes from a political standpoint and where we decide to put our money. And part of me, like when my cousin says like support the doctors and the nurses and we're, and they're understaffed is like, Absolutely. And let's encourage more people to go to nursing school and to go to, to medical school. Like, let's change this now. So in 20 years, we have a completely shifted perspective on like preventative medicine and investment in things that will actually make the world a better place and less anxiety filled. Even, even off total even personal off, opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but uh, I can give you some anecdotal data, uh, even, even optimizing the medical system. Um, 
I, I was listening to a talk last year, and it was from a young medical doctor from Vancouver, uh, someone I, I met and, and got to know a bit, and he gave a talk, so I wanted to listen to it. And one of the things he said that startled me more than anything is in a 12-hour shift, he spends 10 hours doing paperwork and two hours with patients. And it's like, that, like that's horrible. Like, you know, like he should be spending, you know, 11 and a half hours with patients and someone else should be doing the administrative stuff that, that like, you know, that's not what he did all the training for. He did all the training to be in front of patients. And in terms of the, the, the demand on the healthcare system, I couldn't agree more. Like when we presented our data about the, the fatigue in the emergency room here, you know, the doctors completely said, well, yeah, the, we are all tired, but the problem is we need 20, there's 16 doctors that handle the emergency room at the local hospital. And they said, we need 24. Wow. Right. But it's a yeah. budget area. It's a budget issue, right? Doctors, for, you know, society has made doctors expensive. So for Island Health to come up with money for eight more doctors is is not a trivial thing. Um, and, you know, I agree with you. I, I'm, I would love to see the budget break down for some of this stuff because I have a suspicion there's a lot of money being wasted in a lot of places. Yeah. Well, and it even translates into the private sector too, because you think of like, I have many friends actually that I grew up with and went to university with and stuff that ended up going into pharmaceutical sales because it was just so lucrative. Like I'm talking early two thousands, right? Like you could be right out of university and pop into a job and make $150,000 at the age of 28. Like who doesn't want that job? Right. Exactly. And naturally back then there was this, um, like they called it no free lunch when they finally brought in the rules of like, Hey, you can't take a, a doctor golfing as a means to get them to prescribe your drug. Like that used yeah. to be a thing, like as little as 20 years oh, yeah. ago, which is insane to think. But even medical sales too. I just think like, I wonder if people actually understand the cost of a medical bed. Like it's expensive. Does it need to be? I don't know. Could it be supplemented through government funding? There's got to be a better way to do it. That's for sure. <laughs> it's got to be a better uh, way. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I know that I don't know as much about the hospital purchasing, but, you know, I can give you a classic example. I don't, well, maybe I'll get in trouble from this. Who cares? But <laughs> well, we can I cut bought, it if it's risky. Nah, you let nah, me know. Nah, it's, it's not risky at all. But, you know, I bought a thousand dollar TV for the lab to put on the wall, right? Uh, you know, reasonable TV. We use it for presentations and things. It's, it serves, it's not a recreational device. It's used for science. And the university charged me a thousand dollars to wall mount it. And I wasn't allowed to do it myself uh, because that would violate some kind of rule. Right. And it's like, like it doesn't cost a thousand dollars to wall mount the TV. Like give me a break. And so the question I've always asked is, you know, where does that money go? So if it's happening in universities, it's happening in hospitals, right? Yeah. You know, they were going to repaint my lab and uh, the painting bill was like $23,000 or something. And it's like, it doesn't cost $23,000 to paint a couple of rooms. Come off. Where does the money go? So if it's happening there, it's going to be happening in, you know, it's going to be happening in, in hospitals and any aspect of bureaucracy. Yeah. And that's the deep question to ask on all of this stuff is, are we asking the right questions and analyzing the right things? And I think if anything, though, the call it chaos of what's gone on in the last two years with the pandemic and everything else is at least bringing to surface these conversations where people are asking the right questions or they're, or they're starting to. And I think that's important. I, I agree hundred percent. I think, you know, just focusing on what we said about the healthcare system, you know, we don't think we ever questioned it before because it was never really like, you know, we all knew someone that was occasionally in the hospital and someone occasionally got really sick, but 
it's not like this thing now where it's like all of us care, right? You know, like we're all watching the number of ICU beds and the number of people in hospital because we're We've been told, and it's true based on what happened in Italy in the early days of the pandemic in Spain, you know, if those numbers had gone too high, uh, things would have been really bad. But, you know, it's, I think it's the first time most of us have really thought about where the money goes and how it, how it really operates. No doubt. All right. Well, I'm very conscious of time here, Olaf, and I want to end us on one important question here before I let you go. What is one thing you are most grateful for right now? My son. It's always my default answer, but I've got an amazing 14-year-old boy who I see almost every day. And uh, he, uh, he actually did his science fair project the other day, and he was using a, a portable brainwave device to measure brainwaves. Nice. And he did his own neuroscience experiment. And Oof, I, I as a dad, go. was just sitting there. I taught him how to do it, but he did all the work himself. Dad, it would be easy to think that dad went in and gave a hand, but I told him up front, if you want to do this, but it was his idea. So I just, you know, to know my son loves me and, and he's a part of my life. Uh, that's definitely what I'm most grateful for. Right on. Well, I figured we'd end on that because that'll wire our brains to put smiles on our faces here for the rest of the day. So I, <laughs> I appreciate you doing this with me. Um, Not a problem, and I, Trevor. Yeah, I appreciate the insight that you had to share and even your personal opinions and whatnot as well. Uh, I think it's an important piece of the conversation for people to, you know, give this a listen and and just consider how they have the ability to create some impact on how they think and, and um, you know, how it can impact their lives. So how can people learn more about you? How can they check out and find your podcast as well? Yeah, so um, the uh, I've got a Twitter feed, That NeuroSci Guy, uh, where I sort of post updates about the science my lab is doing and things we do. Um, the podcast is That Neuroscience Guy. Um, it's on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you want to look. Um, it's the neuroscience of daily life. So it's not really about my research program, but like our first impo- our first episodes on the uh, the neuroscience of impulse shopping. So why you might Im- why you might impulse shop. Um, and just a range of topics about trying to explain things in our daily lives and, and how, you know, what's the science behind it. Um, and then um, if people are curious about the research I do, it's my last name, CraigOlsonLab.com. Um, if you can't spell that, it's tricky, but I'm sure it'll be in the show notes. So there yes. you go. Perfect. I'll link it all up. And yeah, I appreciate your insight. And, uh, and also just appreciate having you in my life, man. Like I enjoy seeing your face on those calls on Monday nights. So. I, hey, well, uh, thanks for having me, and it's uh, great. To, I'm happy we've become friends. It's uh, the Monday nights are definitely one of the high points of my life. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'll see you in a few days then. <laughs> you will see me in a few days for sure. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Trevor Turnbull Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please consider subscribing on my YouTube channel and on your favorite podcast platform and leave me a review. I'd love to hear from you. Now, until next time, remember, today is a beautiful day of opportunity. Trust that you're exactly where you're supposed to be right now. So be grateful, be curious, and be brave. 